Good morning, everyone. My name's Colm. Uh, I'm a senior principal engineer. Um, I've been working at AWS about uh, 12 years. And um, I'm not a, a part of our security organization. We have a, a security org at AWS led by our uh, Chief, Chief Information Security Officer, Steve Schmidt. Um, I'm uh, just a developer. Uh, I've worked on services uh, like CloudFront and Route 53 and EC2 and ELB and so on. And uh, what I want to try and do today is give you a flavor for what uh, it's like to work on those services and how we integrate security uh, as part of our development process, how we make it um, a thing we're constantly thinking about. Uh, you know, if you ask uh, a member of a security team or a security engineer, you know, what's the most important thing? They're always going to say security, right? They've got this huge, huge vested interest. Um, but I think that's true on uh, the average development team, too. You know, most developers at AWS would say exactly the same thing. And uh, I actually, you know, think the number one thing we do um, to, to make that true is that it's just in the air we breathe and it's in the water we drink and it's just this really strong intrinsic cultural value. Um, on my office wall, uh, literally, you know, scribbled on the outside is uh, what I think are our priorities for, for how we're doing. Um, like if we're, do, if we're making a design and we have to make any trade-offs in that design, uh, this is the order of priorities I've used as long as I've been at AWS and then I know most other people use too. And security really is the number one thing. Like we really, really mean it. It's not just a platitude that our uh, you know, CEO or, or CISO say from stages and so on. Like it really is something we're thinking about a lot every single day. Um, one of the ways I know security is our top priority is that if, if we had you know, some kind of active issue that was impacting our customers that meant uh, you know, intruders or folks who shouldn't be able to were actually able to um, you know, like manipulate their data or you know, like we actually saw like here's actual stuff happening in real time that would uh, you know, not be good, right? That would, that would lead to information disclosure. Uh, we'd turn it off, right? We would sacrifice availability in that case um, because it's, it's just so, you know, it, 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 it's such a severe consequence and no one ever wants to uh, think about things like that. Uh, but th that's how we really mean it. And um, security I, ha happens at lots of parts in our development process. We're gonna talk about those. But it also happens even really before the development process begins. Um, you know, uh, we like to feel like we're a very customer-focused company. Uh, I spend a fair amount of time talking to customers. Uh, and that's, you know, they're asking us, or sorry, we're asking them, you know, what do you think of features we recently launched? What do you think of services we recently launched? And what do you want in future services? And uh, the, by far the most common question that these customers have Right? The thing they want to know is, uh, when am I getting that new feature? Right? That's, their, that's the most common thing. You know, with customers that we're in previews with or, or customers that we have uh, you know, long, enduring conversations with, um, you know, we explore our roadmap with them and we, we pitch 
new ideas at them and we ask them, you know, what do you think of this? What, what, uh, what would you like? And, you know, and then we come back to them and say, yeah, we think we're going to do that. And then they immediately want to know, like, what's the date? You know, when am I going to get that? Uh, which is fair, <laughs> makes sense. But even those are most, you know, top asked question, and we'd really love to be able to give them an answer. We're very, very cautious about giving them answers uh, and giving them firm dates uh, or having anything set in stone. Um, in a lot of ways, it would be better for our business if we just did give them dates, you know, and, and a, a lot of other companies do work like that. Um, and uh, even though software development uh, is, is a bit of an art uh, as well as a science and, and you know, it, estimates are never uh, completely accurate. It is you know, generally possible if you really set a date and you really mean it, you, know, you can often hit it by just adding extra resourcing and you know, really, really squeezing to get there. But what we know and what's in the back of our heads every time when we get this question is that we might have to drop everything at no notice to handle either an operational or a security event. And, and that will just add time to our schedules and things will slip. And we know that that's the top priority. And we know that our number one feature is really our, the security and availability of our systems. That matters way more um, than any new functionality we can add. And it really, really, like, it starts there. That's why we're cautious. Even before we start developing anything, we're setting expectations. Because we know when we, when we say we're going to do a feature or a new service, there is going to be a lot of work involved on making sure it's secure. And there's going to be a lot of, uh, and sometimes that's um, even harder to estimate because you never know what you'll find. Um, and a lot of this, you know, what, what does it mean at, at the day-to-day -day level? I'm going to break this down into a few different ways we tackle this. So I'm going to talk about how we actually promote and reward security as a cultural value. Like I said, that's the number one thing I think achieves great security. I'm going to talk about how we build security into our services, um, how we also react uh, to new and emerging threats. You know, the security landscape is constantly changing. There's security risks uh, and threats, you know, these days that I never would have imagined when I joined AWS. Um, and, and obviously, everybody uh, has to adapt to those, and we have to be able to cope with them. And I'm going to talk about how we actually handle security incidents. And I'm going to go through how we mitigated the Heartbleed event. Uh, five years ago, because uh, it's a nice, interesting example uh, that I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs> um, so uh, there's a saying I like uh, from Peter Drucker, who's a management consultant, which is that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? If you really, really want to do something well, uh, and if you, if you really want to value something, then it's going to be something that just everybody uh, talks about a bit and is clear everybody values, and all of the leaders uh, signal that, is a, uh, that it's a valuable thing, and nothing beats that, right? You can write down as many times as you want, security is our number one priority, but I don't think that will actually happen unless, you know, the leaders and influential people are constantly signaling that and reinforcing it and making tough decisions like saying, yeah, we will have to defer that feature a bit because we have to do this critical security work. That's not optional, right? That's a really strong cultural signal that that work really matters and is, and is really, really valuable. Uh, at Amazon, we've got a set of leadership principles. They, 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 um, they cover the whole company, not just AWS, uh, where we've boiled down you know, these little nuggets uh, that we're trying to encourage in ourselves 
Um, and, a, and a bunch of these are, are how we get at security. They're really, um, they directly speak to that. Um, it's, uh, and, and, and that's coming like from all, all the way at the top down, right? If it wasn't that our CEO and, and CISO like, didn't really, really, really care about this stuff, then I think all the next layers down also wouldn't either. You know, that, that kind of cultural signal matters. And so like, this, a really strong example of that is if I had a security issue reported um, for one of the services that I work on or one of the teams that I'm a part of, like, just almost certainly that day our CEO, Andy Jassy, is going to know. You know. I've sent emails like this myself. You know, hey, we got this security uh, vulnerability report. Uh, a researcher told us that you know, some protocol we're using or, or, um, or some software we might be consuming uh, has this security issue in it, or maybe they, they found uh, a, um, a, a new issue in an AWS service or something like that. And even at that point, even before we've confirmed it, even before we've you know, really had a sense of, um, of whether this is going to be uh, a drop everything or uh, a nothing, you know, we, we have made that visible and accountable pretty much all the way to the top. Um, we also operate on kind of a need-to-know basis, so we're not necessarily sharing all the full details but we're, uh, with everybody, but we're, we're definitely making it accountable. We're saying, hey, this came in, we've got this, we're going to spend some time looking at this, we'll, we'll get back to you soon. Uh, they also have a weekly meeting where they're actually looking at, you know, any open issues, anything, um, that should be tracked and making sure that nothing's falling through any cracks and that we're making the right kinds of progress. That's a really strong organizational signal that this stuff matters, right? People at the very top making time for this. Um, and it's, it's also just a nice operational tool. You know, it does make sure things don't fall through cracks. That rarely happens. People stay on top of this stuff. Um, but if, you know, the wrong combination of people uh, were were, went on leave or something like that, you've at least got this mechanism as a, as a nice fallback uh, to make sure that ev everything's being tracked, uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, and then we have these principles and tenets that I started talking about out of order. Um, and I think the one, the biggest one that um, matters here is that at, at Amazon we have an ownership culture, right? Um, which means when I build a service, or, you know, as a team, um, we fully own that service as a business, as, a, um, a, a, as something to operate, as something to keep online, but also something to keep secure, right? And this is incredibly valuable for a security response because there's no ambiguity about this. We have a security org and security teams, and they help us a lot with security. I'm going to talk about that, but it's, it's not not their primary job to fix security issues. That's not how this works, right? The, the teams who own the service are expected to be able to go really, really deep and expected to be able to um, mitigate and handle any security issue that they have to deal with in a, a, you know, in a very timely way. Uh, and, and that matters a lot. You know, I've seen other organizational models where you do have security teams who are you know, security heroes and they kind of parachute in and patch code and you know, get it all, all working and so on. But we found that's, that's not as sustainable for us. We want to be able to stand over all this stuff and integrate it directly into our process, uh, which matters. Uh, we have an insist on the highest standards leadership principle. 
which for me means uh, when we're doing security testing or, you know, when there's just kind of security best practices that everybody knows you should do, you know, I like to use this leadership principle to, to really make sure we, we do do them, like we really do do them. Um, you know, an ex uh, a small example of that is we go to the trouble of like using formal verification on our most security critical software. It's a very high standard that we insist on. Um, but we, we just absolutely insist. Uh, again, because we know, you know the consequence of any error is just absolutely huge. And so uh, we're, we're able to justify all that investment too. Um, but you know, it's, it's very clear when you're going through a security review or when you're talking about security, you know, it's not really okay to say, well, we'll just let that slip for a while. We'll do that later. You know? Or yeah, maybe we don't need that. You know, for the most part, it's going the other way. And if anything, we, we overdo it, um, uh, which is definitely the direction we prefer. Um, we have a leadership principle about diving deep, which means when we get security issues, right, a, a, um, a clinical, like, really important part of the process is understanding it in incredible detail. You know, most security issues arise because of completely reasonable assumptions people were making, you know, turned out not to be completely correct, or there, gap, there were gaps between those assumptions, and they tend to be really nuanced, and it tends to be very creative, imaginative, you know, security researchers who, who come along and find them, and, um, and, and they take a lot of, like, tediousness to really go through and, like, fastidiously, like, really make sure you understand them. Um, and, and the same for the absence of security issues, you know, to make sure that they're not there really requires that just really tough, uh, solid understanding of everything that's going on. One of our design tenets, you know, something we strongly, strongly encourage in all of the systems and software we build, right, is to write small systems, you know, to build simple things that are then composable, right? And, and just having that as like a first-class architectural thing means that you know, our, our systems internally tend not to be too complex. They operate at an enormous scale, and they've got lots of rigor to do that, but they're generally not using a lot of fancy you know, uh, algorithms or anything to do that. Uh, and that helps with security a lot. You know, it's a lot easier to review those systems, um, and it's a lot easier to convince yourself uh, that they're secure. So I, 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 um, I love that we do that. Um, something I believe makes a huge, huge difference too is that we uh, encourage ourselves to just write like really clear, readable code, right? Like it's not okay to write a bunch of code at Amazon that has like a lot of single letter variable names, you know, X, Y, Z, and A, B, C. It's like, what do those do, right? Or to have uh, just really ugly long functions or very deep call stacks or, you know, just spaghetti code that's, that's um, just really, really hard to follow. You know, we, we have explicit architectural guidance around uh, let's make this stuff easy to digest. We, con we concern ourselves a lot with readability. Um, and, I, you know, my experience is that uh, the most security issues arise in the least readable code bases. You know, there's, there's code bases I've seen over time where they're just an absolute mess and, um, the you know issues just show up and up and up over over the years, um, and you know where those are open source packages and so on. We try to just avoid using them, and and part of our process is actually 
doing readability evaluations uh, on things. Uh, the code we write ourselves, though, try to make it just super crisp, easy to follow. Like, I get very nervous, uh, <laughs> very, very nervous if it's not. And then uh, another kind of architectural uh, principle we have is that, you know, if we make errors, and we will, because we're humans, right? Um, it's not enough to simply fix those errors, right? We have to have layers of defense, even in our code, right, that protect against those errors. So we've, we've you know, been investing more and more in tools and techniques that, you know, can do all sorts of static analysis, all sorts of formal verification, um, or, or even runtime checking in some cases that are making sure, well, even if we made a mistake, it's, it's not going to result in a large security issue. Uh, you know, a simple example is memory safety, right? Designing memory safety in to the architectures or programming languages that we use. Uh, and therefore, if we make any kind of um, bug that would uh, lead to accessing you know, memory that shouldn't, well, the, the other layer just won't allow that, um, which, is, uh, which is awesome. And then the last kind of uh, principle I wanted to cover is that uh, we encourage teams uh, to be technically fearless. And what, what we mean by that, right, is uh, we want teams to be able to take risks. Right? We want to be able, teams to be able to push boundaries. But we don't mean <laughs> that they, want, they should take availability risks or security risks. That's not what fearlessness is. Uh, what fearlessness is is saying nobody on the team is afraid, right? They always feel free to raise doubts to be self-critical, to you know, have concerns, and uh, to be able to raise those and feel heard and seen, and for the team to you know, work in this collegial way to like, well, how do we address that concern, right? Because you've got, if you've got an unhealthy team dynamic with a lot of fear or shaming and blaming, you know, that's just not good. Stuff gets swept under rugs, you know? It's, it's just not, um, it's, it's just not what you want. So we always want people able to like speak up and talk about risks that they uh, suspect or identify. And, uh, and then we address them with professionalism, right? We'll try to make data-driven decisions. We'll try to really dive in and say, well, is that risk founded or not? What are the consequences? Uh, what do we need to do about it? But really, really healthy atmosphere, uh, I think, matters a lot. Um, so I think there's three pillars to how we tackle uh, and integrate security, right, directly into our development process. Um, one pillar is policy, right, so we have written down security policies that uh, are kind of the rules of the road for certain things, and, um, and we have uh, processes and mechanisms that we apply, like security reviews, uh, and we have tools. You know, we've built tools that make things a bit easier. And uh, so I work on cryptography, you know, we have a cryptography policy that says, you know, here's the algorithms you're allowed to use, here's the, um, here's the, here's the options you can, you can enable in different regions and so on. Like we have slightly different rules in GovCloud uh, where our customers expect, you know, FIPS uh, mode encryption and so on. Uh, slightly different rules in certain countries uh, which have different rules around different encryption algorithms and so on. And that's all written down, you know, that stuff belongs in a policy. Uh, or we might have another uh, security policy around access control, you know? Uh, who can log into a system and when, 
which is basically nobody and almost never. But you know, that's written down in a, in a security policy somewhere. Um, and uh, those policies, you, know, you can go search and look at them. And if you're building something, you can read them. Um, but they're also reviewed as part of security processes like security reviews. So you're building something new and you're going through a security review, your security reviewer will make sure you're applying all those policies. Um, but the real secret of success is that we integrate all those lessons like, directly into our tools so that nobody has to read that stuff, right? Like we don't want to have a primarily bureaucratic approach. We want to have a primarily uh, automated and integrated approach. So these three pillars, I think, break down in kind of levels of importance, for me at least. Like policy matters, you have to have it. You need those rules. Um, but that's not something I'm interfacing with a lot, uh, maybe a few times a year. Uh, security processes, like reviews, I'm going through a fair bit. But tools, tools are what are saving me every single day, you know, integrating these best practices into our defaults. Um, and that's how we build this stuff into our services. That's the real, um, the real secret sauce. Uh, other examples of security policies we have, you know, just how certain kinds of information can be handled, where it can be, what the encryption standards, compliance standards, all sorts of stuff like that. Our security org maintains these. Uh, they keep them up to date over time. I'm very, very glad that they do. So the security review process, that's probably our kind of biggest active security process. Anytime I uh, begin development on a new feature or a new service, uh, we engage the security org and, um, and they assign you know, one or more security reviewers who uh, in general will kind of become our buddies. It's, uh, we have kind of a V-team you know, uh, pairing system where um, they don't just show up for a few meetings, but you know, they're kind of disclosed on like what we're building, why, uh, here's our high-level design, all that kind of stuff, and they kind of stick with it for the, for the duration of the thing, ideally. You know, sometimes people come and go, and, and we have to hand off the baton and so on. But that's, that's the ideal model. Uh, that's our kind of default. Uh, we also do point-in-time reviews sometimes, you know, if something's quite small. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe just engage a security reviewer, and, uh, and, and they'll help us and they'll facilitate um, you know, grabbing some experts in. Security viewers, you know, uh, they're security engineers for the most part. Um, you know, they're not, they are world-class experts in, in some sense. You know, they're, they're, we have a very high hiring bar and they're, they're uh, great engineers. But nobody could possibly be a world-class expert on every single topic. Uh, so they also act as facilitators, you know, and they, uh, they use our network to pull in the right people and see, you know, who should take a look at this? How do we all convince ourselves that it's correct? Um, and um, as I said, you do this kind of at the beginning, and that's by far the best way to do it, to completely integrate into your development process. Uh, it doesn't tend to happen, um, except sometimes when we make acquisitions and so on, and we have different companies that get integrated into AWS. Um, but in theory, if you, if you didn't do a security review, you, you won't be allowed to launch. Our security team owns a final gate on whether something can actually launch. Their explicit approval is required. And basically, nobody who builds a service uh, reports into that org. So um, that's some really strong you know, um, accountability with the right incentives. You know? and, uh, and I've seen them do it. You know? I've seen them hold up things uh, until they, they, were, they were very comfortable with it, uh, which is good. You know, that's what we want. 
Um, I'm, I'm very glad they have that power. If you're building something that's exposed on a network or exposed to untrusted input, uh, you know, some kind of way of doing an API or a protocol or a storage system, um, we will also generally do penetration testing. Um, teams will do some themselves. More and more, we're doing adaptive fuzzing as well um, as, as just part of ordinary development that a team will be doing. But a security view will often engage uh, either our internal pen testing team or engage some vendors that we work with out there who specialize on pen testing. Um, and I, I love this. It's pretty cool. I was working on a project um, this year that spanned uh, about five different organizations in five different countries. It was quite a big project uh, across AWS. Um, uh, had, you know, challenges coordinate when you've got, got that many teams. And, um, and, but we decided we would need to do some penetration testing as part of this uh, project. And, you know, I went to the security team and I was expecting, oh, you're, you're going to have to wait a few months, you know, we're, uh, we're, really, we're really busy and, um, and so on. But they, they actually, uh, at this point, do it so often that they've become really well resourced for this. Uh, and it was no trouble at all. They were able to give me two weeks of incredibly good pen testing. They found issues, uh, thankfully not security issues. But they did find that our, the API we built was a little inconsistent and sometimes returning different error codes. Um, and it actually had all sorts of value for us beyond you know, just, just looking for security issues. Um, I love that we do this. Uh, we have the automated reasoning group uh, at AWS. And this is a group that's kind of 50-50 between uh, software development engineers and academics. And, um, they help us build formal models of our security critical systems and then apply formal, formal, verifica formal verification techniques uh, to the actual compiled code. And this is awesome. Uh, I do this on, on a project I'm part of called S2N, our implementation of SSL and TLS. Um, and it, it's, uh, it helps me sleep at night. Um, it's pretty cool. But then we also just build a lot in, right? As I said, we try to get a lot of our lessons into our tools, right? And so if, if I go to the internal tool at Amazon, it's called Octane, for building a new service. You know, we've literally got a one-click interface for building a new service. It's cool. Um, and just click that box and create a hello world AWS service. Like, does nothing special, right? Um, I get a lot of stuff for free, right? That service will come out of the box with managed you know, TLS and SSL, with integration into ACM so that I don't have to worry about the certificates. It comes with SIGV4 signature support for authentication, right? Uh, it's got uh, IAM just built in. I don't have to do anything to support that. It's got support for AWS CloudTrail, just built in. AWS Config, right, so that my customers can make snapshots and see drift over time and audit things, right? I don't have to do any of that. It's like I have a staggering head start because the approach we've taken is to just integrate all this stuff into the defaults because trying to tell, you know, thousands of developers you got to do all these things just would not scale. That's crazy. You know, we've got an enormous encryption stack at this point, right? Maintained and built and engineered by world-class cryptographers and world-class cryptography engineering teams. And it's just like they're at our disposal. Right? I need to store a key. I've got a key management service. I need to encrypt data on the network. I've got like four different layers. 
I need to encrypt uh, storage. I've got like two different layers, right? Very adaptable, speeds up a lot of things. Uh, it's, uh, it's awesome. You know, when I joined AWS, it wasn't like that. You would spend a lot of time working with engineers, going through the nitty gritty of like, well, here's how to do this right, here's how to store this key, here's how to distribute this credential. You know, these days all of this is, um, all of this is uh, solved for me, which is uh, an enormous relief, I love it. Um, it's just awesome. Um, since every team um, also has to operate the service, right? If I build a service at AWS, I'm expected to operate it, uh, no matter how big it is. Um, you know, it would be very easy for there to be security issues at that layer. You know, if people were just using let me in as a password to like configure everything, right? That wouldn't, that wouldn't be good. Um, but our security org has actually built uh, lots of internal tooling for helping me manage things. You know, we've got get this great internal system that integrates with our corporate uh, credentials that basically lets me get into the AWS console and launch things from building like test stacks. I never, I don't even know what the underlying, you know, AWS credentials for that account are. I don't need access to them. Uh, it's amazing. And they've built systems which help us, you know, achieve our goal of nobody needing to log into any boxes. You know, they, they help with the automation of all that uh, and, and really invest in those spaces so that, you know, we don't have teams just building, you know, dumb shell scripts that are logging into everything or, or something like that where uh, obvious security issues could arise. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, that's how we build stuff in. But how do we react to, uh, you know, new things that are coming along all the time? Um, I don't have a great cheat for this. I don't have any magic. Um, I think the main thing that we do is uh, really try to hire, like, genuine world-class experts in these spaces. And it tends to be really, really important, right? We, uh, we need to have folks who are networked and are in those kind of, kind of cliques and cabals of like security communities who are in the know and are, you know, when security, when new security threats emerge, um, those folks uh, get notified. And that's, that's mostly not because they work at Amazon, that's because of their personal reputations, right? That's because other folks in that security community know this person really knows what they're doing. I want their help on this, right? Which in turn means we, we can help with that, make sure everything is right, and ultimately our customers benefit too. Um, we've got all sorts of examples for this. Uh, you know, on the cryptography side, we've got a world-class cryptography engineering team, you know, developing new encryption modes. Uh, we released one this week called Scram. Uh, we, uh, Shai Guran, um, who works at AWS, released Civ. Uh, before, earlier this year, Shai actually as well, um, Shai and Nir uh, found a problem in the TLS 1.3 protocol. They actually found a gap uh, in the security proofs, uh, which had evaded uh, a lot of people, including myself. <laughs> um, and um, it's, uh, it, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty awesome. We've got a paper out on, on how we do more of this cryptography engineering in S2N that actually won a... a Honorable Mention Award from the NSA uh, for Best Paper this year, which, which is pretty cool. But, you know, when Spectre and Meltdown came along, you know, we had world-class experts on microarchitectural side channels, right? And so those folks helped mitigate it, you know, and that stuff um, really, really matters. And in building those communities, right, we're trying to build great 
open collaborative relationships with security researchers, right? We, we try not to think of them as adversaries because they're not, you know? So, uh, sometimes uh, I've seen some companies get security notifications and react very negatively, all the way up to like threatening to sue the researchers, which is crazy, because uh, we're all on the same side, right? We're all ultimately just trying to protect customers. Um, so we try to have really healthy relationships with them. You know, I try to congratulate researchers whenever they find things um, uh, and, and, and keep things as, as good as possible. And when I say I don't have any magic or, you know, that this is what I mean. Like, it's just this groundwork of, of having these networks and maintaining really good uh, relationships that helps us get disclosed on security issues and helps us, um, you know, stay in the loop and ultimately improve things for our customers. Um, last thing I want to talk about is how we handle security incidents. So security incidents aren't something uh, we talk a lot about. Uh, in general, we don't want to give anything away about our, what, what our real-time practices are. Um, but I'm going to talk about Heartbleed uh, in part because it's a really big uh, security issue that everybody's familiar with. Um, and uh, in part now because it's five years in the past, so it's, it's a little safer for me to talk about it. And um, if you don't remember uh, the Heartbleed vulnerability, uh, I envy you. But on April 7th, 2014, um, uh, a security issue in OpenSSL was made public. And that security issue um, was almost devastating. Not quite the worst kind of security issue you can have, like remote execution, but the next worst, memory disclosure, where an attacker could send a heartbeat message with a corrupt value in it, and OpenSSL would send back arbitrary memory, up to 16K of it. And that could include secrets. It's not good. <laughs> not, <laughs> not what you want. And uh, this issue leaked prior to the embargo. Um, uh, and, um, and so it was effectively a zero day, right? Effectively, early in the morning, um, at about, about 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m., the world just finds out that there's this issue in OpenSSL. Turns out it's very, very easy to exploit. You know, if you know what you're doing, it takes a few minutes to put together a tool that could do this. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's as no notice as zero days get. And, uh, and basically, the whole world was impacted. Like a lot of, lot of people running OpenSSL, uh, millions and millions and millions of web servers, for example. A uh, very, very scary thing to happen. And so um, by about 11 AM that morning, uh, we had activated our emergency response process, which uh, we run at Amazon using conference calls. So we had a conference call up. We had a call leader on that call. Uh, and we had engaged like our top security and SSL and cryptography people, and we're like, okay, this just happened. Uh, we've got, um, uh, we just got notice of this. Customers are starting to ask us about this. Uh, what are we doing? Like, how are we going to handle this event? Um, by, uh, pretty quickly, by, by noon, uh, we had decided that this issue would merit an emergency deployment and that we, we would be doing one. Like, that that day, we would be upgrading OpenSSL across the entire company. Uh, obviously unplanned, wasn't something we were, we, uh, were planning on spending our week doing. Uh, and we immediately froze all deployments across Amazon. So we actually have that capability. Uh, we have a centralized deployment system, and it does have a, a lever for this, which we actually mostly use for operational events, you know, power failures, uh, that kind of stuff. But we used it here too, because we figured 
okay, we're gonna be asking every team at the company to deploy their systems, to take uh, an update, let's, uh, let's, freeze th let's freeze everything as it is, let's minimize all risk, um, let's, uh, let's just you know, keep things as stable as we possibly can before we go in and, and perturb everything. Um, by uh, the early afternoon, we had prepared our own uh, patch for Heartbleed. And uh, around, uh, around about, we actually prepared this independently of getting anything from OpenSSL. They hadn't released their own patch yet. Um, they did release a patch uh, around about the same time. Theirs was about, I think, uh, 64 lines long or so and had included um, just some other uh, small fixes because they essentially just released, like, you know, here's the head of our internal security branch. Um, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to take a patch like that. Uh, we, we figured if we were going to do this emergency update, we wanted to minimize risk uh, as much as possible, keep everything as similar as possible. Um, so our patch was two lines. Um, we wanted to be, we want to have as much confidence as possible. Um, with that two-line patch, you know, we started new OpenSSL builds for all of our platforms, and we basically, you know, paged and engaged every team at Amazon and said, okay, everybody, we got to get this out. And uh, we literally did millions of deployments in that day and finished by about 2 a.m., including, you know, major huge services uh, that have a lot of endpoints. Um, this was not a small amount of work. Uh, and, uh, and the teams pulled it off without impact, which is uh, absolutely staggering. Um, it, it was, uh, I'm very, very proud of that. Um, this, between this day itself, uh, engaging that emergency lever to freeze all deployments, and then the subsequent follow-up work for the next few days, pretty much the average team at AWS or Amazon uh, lost about three days um, due to this issue, right? And so everybody's schedules or whatever slipped by three days. And this was done no notice. Um, uh, there wasn't really any need to discuss that. You know, when we were on the call, uh, we literally said, okay, we're just gonna freeze all deployments. At that point, the call leader does send an email up to our executive team to let them know who in theory, I guess, could veto it, who could come back and say, no, you're crazy. But like nobody, nobody questioned it. There were no doubts. Everybody knew that this was the right thing to do. Um, I don't really know that there's a scientific way to measure the business impact of like three days of schedule slip across uh, an entity as large as AWS, but I'm sure it's measured in millions of dollars, right? Um, but everybody just kind of knew. They had that intrinsic cultural setting to do it. Uh, and, and the mitigations didn't stop there, right? So we'd patched all of our own stuff. Uh, the next day we decided to do something um, we don't normally do, which is that we started scanning customer instances to see if they were vulnerable to Heartbleed because we knew a lot of customers would be impacted and some wouldn't necessarily uh, have the means to know that they were impacted. So we started scanning everything and sending them emails. Uh, those emails did a pretty good job, actually. Within about two weeks, we saw 98% of, of those endpoints get upgraded, which is very, very fast uh, for, for a security issue. Uh, customers did a great job, too. Um, but we had some customers stuck in some just really tough spots. We had a customer who, who was uh, running an application, and it used OpenSSL. It was vulnerable to Heartbleed. Um, but the vendor uh, who 
had given them this application was basically no longer in business. So this was kind of a legacy application. Uh, they didn't have anybody they could get patches or fixes from. Um, and, and they knew they were in this situation. They already had a plan to get off this application, but it was just kind of one of those unfortunate things that you know, the company had kind of gone bankrupt without much notice, and it wasn't something they could really plan for. And now they were really caught in a really tough spot. Now they're vulnerable to a security issue with no way to update it. And they came to us and said, is there anything you can do? And so our team, uh, we actually started building a firewall module for them, right? And we wrote, uh, we wrote a net filter module for Linux, basically overnight, that uh, you know, inserts itself into IP tables and scans the TLS session, like tracks the TLS state machine so that it can find where a heartbeat request is. You can actually do that even though it's encrypted. There's just enough in the plain text that you can tell this is a heartbeat request and dropped all connections with a heartbeat request in it. Uh, and they were able to put that in the kernel and they were mitigated. Um, it's kind of a crazy thing to do. Um, but from there, we figured, okay, we've, we've built an SSL state machine. That wasn't too hard. Uh, why don't we take it a bit further um, and decided to fund uh, our own implementation of SSL and TLS. That project started days after Heartbleed. Um, and that response you know, continues to this day. We're five years into S2N. It's very well funded. We've got lots of people working on it, uh, lots of features. Well, pretty much all our major services uh, run it. Um, and, and so our response wasn't just like that night or those three days, but like a really deep you know, take on what it is we need to make sure that issues like this can never happen to us again. Um, and again, like this was funded and initiated like completely outside of our normal planning cycle. But just because of those cultural understandings that I spoke about at the beginning, like nobody questioned it. It wasn't, you know, it was kind of easily understood that this would be the right thing to do. Um, hopefully, just by talking through all of that, you get a flavor for what the kind of air we breathe is like and, and just how important security is to the average development team, that it's not a platitude. Uh, if you take nothing else away, I, 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 I do hope you take that away. Um, that's all I had, but before I finish, um, this is the last session on the last day uh, in this room, and I'd love to thank all, everybody who supports all this. Like, there's folks on sound and cameras, and all the folks who let us in have been working hard all week, and it'd be great if we could give them a round of applause, because they don't get very many. And, and thank you very much. If you've got questions for me, just grab me after I get off the stage.